Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Our guest today is Catherine DeBoard, Vice President of Product Strategy at Disco, a company that uses artificial intelligence, cloud computing, and data analytics to automate parts of the legal practice so that lawyers can focus their attention on other important areas. While Katie is known today for her work in legal innovation, her career journey actually began in an unexpected place, the Central Intelligence Agency. When Katie joined the CIA, she fulfilled a lifelong dream. But after four years as an intelligence analyst, she made a left turn and decided to go to law school. As a summer associate, she discovered her love for litigation and went on to have a complex commercial litigation practice for over a decade. She was a partner at Brian Cave when she joined the firm's innovation committee, learning the ins and outs of law firm innovation and change management. She would go on to apply this knowledge as chief innovation officer, leading the firm's international cross-disciplinary team to advance the quality of legal services through developing and adopting new technologies. Today, as Vice President of Product Strategy at Disco, she's helping the company determine what's next in the litigation technology space. In today's conversation, Katie tells us about how she started with the moniker 007, leading to her life in the CIA, making left turns in her career, what litigation and innovation have in common, and working at Disco. I really enjoyed the conversation and I hope you enjoy listening. Thanks for taking the time. Katie, it's great to see you again. Thanks for joining. It's so good to see you, Steve, and thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. As am I. We finally reconnected in person out in San Francisco at Solid West, and it's the first time we've we've seen each other in person for, what, three or four years? However long it's been? You know, I think the last time that we saw each other was in Chicago at the Northwestern event. I was actually thinking about that. But, you know, you've always been such a great person in the space and somebody I always look forward to seeing. And so it was great to see you again last month. It was great to see you again. And it was great to catch up on all the cool things you're doing. You gave a wonderful presentation at Solid talking about making left turns as your career, which fits perfectly into the theme of this podcast, where we talk about people's professional journeys. So walk us through it. Let's let's start with your life as a spy. (laughs) (laughs) You want to hear the precursor to that? (laughs) Let's hear the precursor to that 007. (laughs) Um, Okay. So it actually was all like a life plan from basically the moment I was born to work for the CIA. So I was adopted. And my parents had waited eight years for a baby. And we're told, do not plan for a baby, don't buy any supplies for a baby, do not come up with any names for a baby because, you know, you might not get a baby. Um, And so one day they got a phone call, baby is here, you can come look at it. And if you want to take it home, you can take it home. (laughs) (laughs) So they took me home. I slept in a drawer for, I think, the first two nights that I, I was at my parents' house but they didn't have a name for me. And so they called me 007. And that was my name for about the first two weeks that I, you know, was in my, in my new home. And there's letters going back and forth about, you know, how 007 is doing and physical attributes <laughs> and pictures of me with 007 on the back and the date. So 007 became my name uh, as a baby. And then I finally, thankfully got a real name. 
Um, <laughs> I don't know. Double seven is pretty good. I have to. Admit. I know. I know. I know. I know. So you know. So I grew up with this like fascination with working for the CIA, even though I really didn't understand what it was or what it did. I was celebrating the end of finals with my college friends in the Ozarks, and we were watching in the line of fire, which has nothing to do with the CIA whatsoever. I was going to say, isn't that Secret Service? It's Secret Service. But of course, I didn't necessarily realize this at the time because, again, I didn't necessarily know a lot about the CIA. But I was about to go to D.C. for a summer internship, and um, I made a bet with my friends that I would have a job with the CIA by the end of the summer. And the bet was that they would pay for all of my beer uh, for my 21st birthday, which was the following February. So so that's that's how the entry into the CIA <laughs> occurred. <laughs> that's, a, that's a well-planned career decision there, yeah, Katie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I knew that I was going to be able to do it. I mean, it was, you know, when you're, I think that's one of the things when you're young, you know, the idea that you're not going to do something is, is a little bit. Of course I'm going to work for the CIA. I'm going to be in DC. I'll meet people. (laughs) Right. CIA is going to want me. That's right. (laughs) Right. And you were an intelligence analyst, right? I was. Without disclosing any state secrets, for those of us that whose experience with the CIA comes from watching Jack Ryan on, uh, (laughs) on prime video. (laughs) I, I suspect that's probably not an accurate picture of what an intelligence analyst does. What do you do as an intelligence analyst? Yeah, I mean, so the CIA was formed after Pearl Harbor was bombed because they realized that all of these different agencies had information that if put together and analyzed, we would have known in advance that that was coming, right? And so really, it's, again, centralizing all of the intelligence in, in one agency, um, and it's foreign intelligence, you know, for the purposes of warning policy makers and the president um, and the National Security Agency, what we think is coming or what the analysts think is coming based on the intelligence that's coming in. And that's really the role of the, what they call the directorate of, of intelligence, which is to be responsible for specific areas and then let people know when they're seeing indicia of something that's material um, and that people need to be informed of. And so for me, most of the time, I mean, I had a few different you know areas, but most of the time I worked in an area related to identifying when there were gray arms transfers to rogue states. And so it was during the time of NATO expansion, you know, when Poland and other countries wanted to join NATO And, you know, watching what was happening, identifying, you know, maybe old Russian tank sales that were occurring to Sudan or transfers of yellow cake between a country and a a rogue state and essentially escalating when that kind of conduct was occurring. So that that was one of the major areas that I worked on, as well as other areas. Yeah, that's fascinating. But you're, you're still not you're not at the CIA. So it didn't it didn't hold you there. Yeah, it, it didn't. I mean, I, I loved it. But, you know, as you can you can understand as an intelligence analyst, you're an observer, right? You analyze, you synthesize information, 
you push it forward to decision makers, but you know, it's actually illegal to what they call politicize intelligence, meaning, you know, to suggest a course of action. And so it it was very much an observer role. And as I, you know, went into my years at the CIA, I really decided I wanted to be more on the action <laughs> and decision-making side of things. And I knew law school was the way that I wanted to go. Um, and so I left about five years in to go to law school. Why was law school? You said you knew it's what you wanted to do. Uh, let's, let's pause on that moment. So it sounds so lame because it is like the thing that every lawyer says, right? I I really went into law school at the time I was working in another area where I was seeing imagery of massacres. And I really wanted to go to law school to perhaps go to the UN or, you know, have some role in criminal justice, international criminal justice. And so that's why I went to law school. I ended up my first summer of law school, I actually worked for the Office of General Counsel at the CIA, which has some amusing stories involving old Russian defectors that we had to, <laughs> we had to manage. <laughs> Who, who, true to form, actually do like to drink a lot of vodka, <laughs> and that was part of part of the uh, management that had to be done. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and I had an offer to to go full time at the you know Office of General Counsel, but the next summer I had a summer associate position at Kirkland and Ellis, and I figured out that summer that I really loved litigation. I loved the game of it, the competition of it, the people. And so my career took that left turn of going from intelligence and foreign relations to Kirkland and Ellis and being a typical corporate litigator. <laughs> There's nothing typical about a Kirkland litigator. Yeah, that's, 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 a, that's, a, that's about it's about as top notch as you're going to get. <laughs> yeah, no, it was awesome. Many of my best friends are still from that that era. It's, they're great people. And you were you were litigator at Kirkland and then at Brian Cave for a number of years before making another left turn. Yes, in, into the world of innovation. Yes. How did that come about? So okay, so what happened was by the time I got to Brian Cave, I was a partner, and I was asked by the chair of our litigation group at Brian Cave to sit on a committee of seven partners. It was a new new innovation committee for litigation. And every week, I think, or every two weeks, we would have a call. We would try to come up with something innovative for the litigation group. And it was completely like it was a complete failure. <laughs> I would have bet I would have bet that from the description of the structure. Exactly, exactly. And I actually, during this time, I researched, like, how do companies innovate, right? And this was back in 2013. So, like, it's not like innovation law was as common of a thing as it is now, right? I, you know, and there wasn't other precedent from other law firms. So I was really looking at other companies. And then as I was researching it, I started researching our, you know, major institutional clients to see if they had innovation positions. And sure enough, a couple of them had created innovation positions in the C-suite. And some of them, you know, even there was, you know, YouTube videos and why they did it and how it worked. And it really is 
you know, the, this idea that you can't do innovation part time and you need to have an overall strategic view and perspective of the company. You actually do need to have resources to do it. You need to have budget, you know, all this stuff. And so I just done this all for my own curiosity. And then because I wanted to figure out why it was such a failure. And then my we, we got a new chair of the firm. And so she came around to all the offices to meet with all the partners. And she had in her file that I had sat on this innovation committee. And she said, well, how is this innovation committee? And I said, it was a total waste of time. And she laughed. And she said, that's actually the first honest thing I think anyone said to me. I'm like, the firm. Welcome to Roland's chair, right? <laughs> right. And um, so we talked about why. And she said, can you send all that material to me that you researched? And so I did. And she read it on her flight home. And a year later, you know, after a couple more conversations, she called me and said, we're rolling out a new strategic plan. Innovation is one of our three pillars. And, you know, we'd like for you to consider leading that function. And, you know, as part of that, I, you know, was going to take over a group and um, a group of developers and lawyers and things like that. And so I hemmed and hawed about it because obviously, you know, I had through blood, sweat and tears made partner. I knew litigation. We all know what it means to give that up. And I was talking to a partner who I'd been working with for a long time, very senior litigator who I consider just an incredible litigator and lawyer. And, you know, he said, listen, my biggest regret is not having taken more left turns in my life, you know, in my career. I really wish that I had done some different things instead of just like kind of the straight path from junior associate to partner. And my advice to you is take the left turn. And then if it doesn't work, come back to litigation and it's, you know, it's always going to be here. Um, and so I did it. And I thought that was honestly really good advice to this day. I still follow. Mm -hmm. So when you took this job, was it okay? Innovation is going to be a pillar of the firm. Okay. That's cool. What does that mean? What, what is that? What does that mean? And, and I, I, I've heard you say that it was a little smooshy at the time. Oh yeah. Yeah. That would, that would freak some people out yeah. without that kind of guidance, but others would view it as blue ocean as an opportunity to make your mark. You obviously fall in the latter category. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what the, what that dynamic was. You know, I, I think that's a, it's a good way to describe it. I've always been a shades of gray kind of person. And frankly, it's probably why I've always liked litigation because litigation isn't about following black and white rules. And it's not like project management. You're actually looking for the shades of gray and how to like exploit it and define it. And so for me, that was, was exciting, but for sure, you know, the, what I did really was look at, you know, what is becoming big in the legal services space? Like, you know, where are people focusing in terms of changing how legal services are delivered? You know, part of it was looking at, you know, revenue generating activity as opposed to purely internal for for obvious reasons. And then looking at our talent, you know, in the firm that we already had. And, and we had some incredible, incredible talent who had been working you know, with clients for years on pricing and, and changing, you know, looking at activities and giving price predictability or doing data analytics for 
portfolio cases and really digging into how they can change the way we're delivering, you know, client services. And so partnering with Chris Emerson, I don't know if you know Chris Emerson, but he was one of those brilliant people that was within Brian Cave as well as Christian Zust. We launched the first legal operations consultancy division in a law firm in 2015 called BC Exponent and really leaned into legal ops, helping our lawyers speak legal operations language, you know, working with our clients on optimizing law departments and solving for problems within law departments. And so that was really our first play. How did you build support for that within the organization? Because that was a very novel idea. People have sort of glommed onto it now, but it's a very novel idea at the time. Law firms are oftentimes consensus organizations. Did you have to build a consensus among the partnership? If so, how did you do it? Or did your chair give you the authority to just say, go do it and we'll show people success and they'll get on board down the road? It was really the latter, you know, which was really good. We, through the work that had already been done, even though it wasn't being coined legal operations, we already had success. So important people within the firm already understood the value of these kinds of conversations and this kind of work with clients. And so we already had that backing, you know, to say, hey, we've actually already proven a lot of this out. And so we're putting a name on stuff, you know, we've been doing for a while in large part. A lot of the challenge was really as we needed to grow in resourcing building out resources and adding headcounts always a challenge in law firms. It's always the budget challenge, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And so it's that dance of, you know, showing the revenue, showing the opportunity, showing the added value to the client. So that creates client stickiness, you know, and, and sort of how do you attribute that in part to the legal operations group so that we can continue doing what we're doing with clients. And that was that was tricky. That was hard. Yeah. And, and I presume in most law firms, and I presume Brian K. wasn't any different, the entree to clients is through the partners, typically. And I presume as you're building success, the willingness of partners to open up their client relationships had to accelerate, yes? Yes. Yeah. I mean, and, but I would also say that our group did have a lot of client relationships, you know, where because of the conversations we were able to have with clients, we were directly interfacing with clients, developing those relationships, developing new relationships. And so, you know, I wouldn't say the partners were the complete owners of those client relationships. But again, the partners who saw and we were able to show, you know, revenue increase, you know, for partners who were using our group, as opposed to partners who weren't. And that was powerful, right? Um, it does get partners' attention. Yeah, yeah. It's always the money. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not. That's not a critical statement. Yeah, that's right. Now you also were developing technology and using data analytics to. You weren't just building a legal ops function. You're also using a lot of these tool sets to develop innovative techniques. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, so it was, there were a couple of different areas, right? One was in the non-legal ops space, investigating, experimenting with technology for our lawyers to use, you know, so early contract review technology, automation and AI technology, things like that. And, you know, what I would say is over the years of my tenure there, we went from really being challenged with 
getting our lawyers to use the technology, right, and to understand how to use it within their practice group, because that that change management, as you know, takes time and resource and mutual commitment. And I honestly, when I first started in this role, had never even heard the term change management. (laughs) Wildly underestimated what it required. By the end of my tenure there, we had essentially within the innovation team, we had professionals who had practiced in each of our major practice areas, real estate, corporate, and litigation, who worked with the practitioners to help them really understand how they can use the technology for their specific practices, but also identify gaps where we can help and and add in or tie in technology. So so that was one big piece of it um, was really making sure our lawyers to the extent possible had access to best in class technology and also understood how to use it. <laughs> and, Always a challenge. Yeah. And then the other side was was developing technology. And that was mostly, you know, on the legal ops side. I mean, we developed before contract management technology really hit the market. We had a contract management system that, you know, again, that the smart people before I came into this role had developed a first iteration of it because they recognized that, you know, that was so essential for our clients and matter management tools and things like that. Obviously, as third-party software accelerated, we, you know, discontinued that practice because we no longer needed to do it ourselves and it didn't make sense for the firm to continue doing that. But that was something that we did. And then on the data analytics side, it was largely, you know, looking at like my favorite example was they, we had a client with, you know, portfolio litigation and we looked at the complaints over time and the allegations made in the complaints to identify statistical outliers, right? either causes of action or characteristics of the plaintiff that materially impacted the total cost of resolution. And we went to the client and said, hey, every time fraud is alleged, which is an obvious one, but that's an example, it increases our total cost of resolution by X. We recommend you increase your settlement authority for these particular circumstances by Y and, you know, get rid of these cases earlier and it decreased their total spend on those cases by 30%. It's amazing the power of data as it, how it affects people's decision making, isn't it? Yeah, I'm I love constantly, it. I love it too. And I'm constantly struck by the power of it. How much experience did you have in data analytics before you took this role? My guess is not a lot. Not none. <laughs> <laughs> These the people who were figuring this out were, were again, you know, just really unbelievably smart, cool people who, I mean, you know, if, if you want to have a fascinating conversation about data, seriously, talk to Christian Zest because he, he can he can give you some stories. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing what happens when you have a team. Yeah. You know, as, as you build as you build teams, it's always good to find people who are smarter than yes, you are. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, now let's let's move forward a little bit because life gave you a left turn. Yeah. Uh, in the early beginning of the pandemic, you caught COVID and had a pretty pretty. I've seen some interviews you've given where you talk about the significance of it. Tell us a little bit about that and how it sort of impacted your professional journey. Yeah. So we as a team had a team meeting in London 
at the end of February 2020. And oh my. <laughs> we have this picture of us all in the train station, all of our heads together, you know, going back from this team meeting. And then I flew back and pretty promptly got COVID. And I ended up in the ICU and it was, I was pretty seriously ill, you know, for in that time, you know, I think I was out maybe two weeks total. But then, you know, that year I just got sicker and sicker. And ultimately in November, I ended up being hospitalized again for two weeks. And my doctor essentially told me, you are going to (laughs) die. We need to look at your will. And we also need to, you know, think about, you know, you taking a sabbatical for five months to get you back. Because if you don't, you know, he was truly concerned I was going to die. So I did. That's not what you want to hear from your doctor. No, 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 you don't. And, you know, he's been my doctor now for years. He's at National Jewish, which is an amazing respiratory hospital. And um, I trust him. And so when he said that, I believed him. And so I took five months off and I, you know, really focused on getting myself back in good health. And yeah, that was, that was really tough. It was really tough to take that time off in some ways. In some ways it was really healthy and good for me to do, but it also kind of allowed me to take a step back and think, you know, what do I want to do next? And so it, it did put early ideas in my head about what comes next in my life. And what came next was disco. Yes. Tell us about that change and about your role at disco. Yeah. So what I figured out was that I wanted to go to a tech company. You know, I had been in a law firm environment for 22 years and I wanted to go to a completely different corporate environment. I wanted to go somewhere where, frankly, they made money off of innovation. (laughs) You know, that is like... (laughs) Unlike law firms, yeah. Necessity. And I wanted to go somewhere that was had sort of a startup feel, but didn't have the risk of a really new startup. And so I was looking at a lot of different options and frankly, relying on, you know, my mentors who, you know, I'm lucky to have amazing mentors across this industry, you know, really talking through what would be right for me. And then the idea of disco came up. And Disco actually checked all of the boxes because I came in as VP of product strategy. I'm helping them think through the what's next for litigation technology, which obviously I have lots of views on as a former practicing litigator. And it's the environment. It's sort of this startup-y environment, but really like hungry. And I mean, the ability for them to make decisions and change and innovate is like mind blowing. People have an idea that's good and it gets implemented. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine that. And it's really, it's been really fun. And I think the other thing for me is I wanted to make sure I was in an environment where I was learning something new. And, you know, I needed to be in an adjacent space and not keep going with what I already knew, really learning something new. And so I definitely am am learning new things every day about, you know, not just software development, but how you professionally combine software and services and deliver the best in class stuff for your clients. So what's, it's an unfair question because you talked about left turns. Left turns usually come out of uh, thin air. So what's what's next as you look down the road? What's you obviously want to continue at disco for a while, but 
Have you thought about what's next for you? No. (laughs) (laughs) Fair answer. I haven't. I mean, I, I really would like to gain expertise in product and product development and bringing products to market. And so I really think if not disco, you know, in five, 10 years, however long it is, I probably would like to stay in the tech space because I just really find it to be fun, exciting, endearing, you know, all of it. And so, you know, but who knows? I, I didn't know until I was drunk in the Ozarks that I was going to go work for the CIA. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not go back to the Ozarks and do that over right, again. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I know we're bumping up against our time, but if you can share a few more minutes, uh, obviously you're now enmeshed in the tech field. What developments do you see in tech that get you the most excited in terms of their impact on the legal profession? I mean, I'm going to give you the standard answer that everyone's giving right now, but truly AI, right? And Right. Generative AI is the answer everybody's given. I mean, it is so mind-blowing. You know, the fact that it can pass bar exams, both the multiple choice and written portions of the bar exams with a 90% pass rate. Isn't that amazing? Holy cow. You know, and the opportunity for infusing that capability within the practice of law and what, what that will give to lawyers, to clients, to judges, how that will like benefit the rule of law is something that my brain is still trying to process, you know, but yeah, that's for sure the most exciting. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. In in the, what I'm trying to wrap my brain around is you see the potential for it to change the practices. It's right there. I mean, it's just, it's, it just hits you upside the head. You can't miss it. But yet the profession, as you know, from years is difficult to change. Adopting technology is not the easiest thing for lawyers or judges to do. And I'm I'm trying to predict how that change dynamic will happen, given those two sort of push-pull factors. Have you thought that through? What do you think is going to happen? Well, I'll give you a quote that I heard the other day, right? And this is from Casey Flaherty. They, he was talking on a webinar about this stuff. And his quote was, the boat is leaving the dock. Either get on the boat or swim or stay on the dock, you know, but the boat's leaving. And beyond that, the people in the boat don't care whether you stay on the dock or whether you're in the water. They're they're going. And so, you know, I do think sort of like the pandemic forced lawyers to almost instantaneously adopt Zoom. I do think that there is going to be a moment in time where people will need to make decisions about whether to jump in the boat or stay on the dock. And whatever they decide will impact what happens for their careers personally. But the people who get on the boat are definitely going to be the survivors. Yeah, I saw an interesting post by David Wang today on, on LinkedIn. He made a similar point, which is that you shouldn't worry about AI coming and take your job. You should worry about people who are able to use and incorporate AI in their practice coming for your job. And to me, whether it's Casey or David, I think that's right. I think that this is too powerful a tool to have a profession say, we're just not going to do this. That's right. That's absolutely right. It's exciting. It is exciting. Well, Katie, thank you for sharing your journey. I wish we had more time. We could, we could talk forever, but you're doing <laughs> such, you're doing such cool things and it's been such a fascinating conversation. It's, it's been great. And I'm glad to see you 
healthy and happy and doing great things at Disco. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me. It's been so fun to be on this. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.